Revelation chapter 11 brings us to a point of closure in this great vision of the scroll with seven seals. It is in this chapter that we are finally introduced to the seventh angel who blows his trumpet and and ushers in a new era which can be characterized as the beginning of the third woe. And so it is this third woe that provides us with a thread of continuity that carries us into the next section of the book of Revelation, even though this next section is is not quite like a, a linear continuation of the previous 11 chapters. So we will tackle that when we come to Revelation chapter 12. Looking then at Revelation chapter 11, we are introduced to two characters who bring us uh, to the end of this second woe. And in fact, in verse 14, it says, The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And so this second, the end at least, of this second woe is characterized by these two characters who become martyrs. And we'll talk about them in great detail, and that is in verses 1 through 13. In verses 15 through 19, the seventh trumpet, or I should say the seventh angel, sounds. And glorious things happen at the sounding of this trumpet, and the stamp of priesthood authority is given to the actions of the Almighty, and the vision closes with the vision of his temple. Let's move back then to verse 1 and learn more about these two figures. Now, before we do that, though, there's a point of continuity here in verses 1 and 2 that carry over from the end of Revelation chapter 10, where John is given a commission to act and to participate in this vision. Verse 1 and 2 then give him a job, and they read like this, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. To state these two verses simply then, John is given an assignment to measure the temple, to measure the dimensions. Only the inner part of the temple, uh, not the outer court, Now, John's reference to a temple would have been the Herodian temple in Jerusalem at this time, Uh, but the model for the temple that he was aware of could have also been uh, Solomon's temple. He would have had some sense for what the dimensions, the original dimensions of Solomon's temple would have been. And, of course, from the scriptures that he had, he would have had a sense 
for the ancient tabernacle. So it, it could be that any one of these are being referenced here or that it is a newer, uh, purer temple or that it's only the temple in concept. And any of those uh, scenarios are possible. Um, and of course, at the end of this chapter, the Lord's temple himself is shown. But why would John be asked to measure the temple? And and by the way, during this time, there was such a thing as a measuring rod um, that was used by surveyors uh, to measure buildings and measure land, and it did come from a giant reed. So that helps us make sense of why verse 1 would say that he was to take a reed like unto a rod and and then was to measure with it. I would also add that there is a parallel here that you can pull from this when you consider the role of the Word of God and how it is referred to scripturally as the rod and in the Book of Mormon likened unto a rod of iron and how it is that we are measured against that rod, and it becomes a source of measurement for us and a source of judgment. And indeed, this word needs to be found in us, which is um, deep with meaning. When we think of measuring in that way, uh, we get closer to the meaning here of why it is that John is being asked to measure this temple. Because what he's really being asked to do is to circumscribe the boundaries of an edifice in which those who are found inside will be safe and those who are found outside will not be safe. This sanctuary that he's measuring then will not be profaned. It will be kept sacred and the people who are worthy to be inside and are found inside will be safe from the destructions that are to come. These destructions specifically will be described later in this chapter when the seventh trumpet sounds. We gather all of this contextually by learning that in verse 2, the court surrounding the temple is to be left out. It actually says the court which is without the temple, leave it out and measure it not. Then we get this very interesting phrase, for it is given unto the Gentiles. So we're measuring, we're circumscribing, we're separating, we're differentiating between those of the covenant and those who are not. A very succinct way of describing a Gentile, according to Daniel Ludlow, is that a Gentile is a non, it's a non-something. And in this case, a Gentile is a non-member. We might even say, referencing earlier phrases from Revelation, a non-member of the church of the firstborn or one who has not received the seal that we spoke of so much in Revelation chapter 7. And so it seems as we progress through this verse that as we're talking about who is safe And who is not, we're talking about the temple of God itself, the court around the temple, and then 
as it says in verse 2, the holy city. And here's the fate of the holy city. It says, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. We'll talk about the forty and two months in just a moment. But notice here that it seems that those in the court then are no better off than those of the city, of the holy city. Richard Draper has some commentary on this. He says, for those outside those limits, the limits of the, of the temple itself, and, and by the way, he, he also draws a parallel to Ezekiel chapters 40 through 42, where Ezekiel sees the temple being measured with great care. So something similar is happening there. But he says, for those outside those limits, there is no celestial shelter. In other words, those in the outer court. Uh, Proximity will not be good enough. The outer court will be in no better position than the city itself. There is a message here. It appears that the sanctuary itself is itself a symbol of the Lord's people, those who are the living temple of God wherein the Spirit dwells. And he references Paul there, uh, this concept that the people themselves are the same as the temple. Uh, Paul once referred to, to the saints like that as a collective and in another instance referred to each individual body. As, as such a temple. Then Brother Draper says, if that is the case, then the outer court is those who are just outside the reach of the Spirit. They are not antagonistic to God, or they wouldn't be in the outer court of the temple, I would add, but they are not fully committed to him either. They are lukewarm, and as God has said, I will spew thee out. Now, I referenced a moment ago the church of the firstborn, this idea that um, there, there is uh, a, a level of commitment to the covenants that are found within the Lord's church that are, are a prerequisite to salvation and safety and to the state of exaltation that's described, uh, for example, in Revelation chapter 4, where there are hosts of others who receive a crown and who receive a throne. And we, we talk about these same um, uh, um, characters in terms of their safety against the day of judgment and destruction here. Before leaving this two-verse segment then, this piece of continuity uh, from the previous chapter where John is involved in the vision, uh, the number of 42, uh, 40 and two months, is the time that these unfortunate souls will be tread underfoot. This is a play on the, the idea of the number three and a half because 42 months is the equivalent of three and a half years. Uh, we, we, these witnesses that we're about to talk about will testify of Jesus Christ for approximately three and a half years or 1,260 days. And uh, then, as we'll read in a moment, they'll be slain and they'll lay in the street for three and a half days. There are other places in the scriptures, like in the book of Daniel, in a couple places in Daniel, 
and there's a kind of a reference in Luke as well, and and the others are in different areas in Revelation. Uh, th- there are times when when this number three and a half is related to a limited, and that's the key word, period of tribulation during which evil forces are allowed to do their work, but they're allowed to, um, and that and that's the key there. So three and a half, also another way of looking at that is that that's half of seven, and, and so seven is the perfect, it's the complete number, and half of it would represent imperfection and, and even apostasy. But maybe most important, as I mentioned a moment ago, um, th- th- this is a time that is allowed um, by God, um, something we've talked about quite a bit previously, uh, and, and he does not allow evil to go on unchecked, and its time is bounded, and its limits are set. So, so that's some of the that that's some meaning then that can be taken from the number three and a half and its different variations as we encounter them here in this chapter. Moving on then to these two, and they're called witnesses in verse three. Verse three says, "And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy." A thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth, and and there's that three and a half years. So he says right at the beginning that he will give power, and we're going to read about how this power is manifest through these two witnesses. Remember that we've been shown earlier in Revelation chapter five that the apostles of the Lamb are given a great deal of of power that was symbolized through the horns and and through the eyes that were depicted in that part of the vision and so these two witnesses have the very power of Jesus Christ they're described in verse 4 as as it says these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Those might not mean much to us as we first read them, but those that's um, flattering and ennobling language. We've talked previously about other prophets seeing elements of this same grand vision that John saw. There's evidence that Zechariah saw the same thing. In Zechariah chapter 4, Verses 12 through 14, we read about these two witnesses once again, and, and, and the, the, the olive tree and the candlestick uh, references here as well. It says in verse actually 11, Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, what be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And we could talk about that golden oil and the symbolism probably of priesthood power there. And verse 13 says, And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And so that parallel vision 
by Ezekiel helps us to understand without a doubt who these two olive trees and these two candlesticks are in verse 4. It functions almost the same way that section 77 functions for us as, as direct interpretation for these images in Revelation. Now, something happens with these two witnesses. In verses 5 through 7, they testify with great power. And then the second half of verse 7, extending through verse 10, we find that something terrible happens. They're martyred. Then we discover in verse 12 that they rise. And after they rise, we could say in a way in verse 13 that God himself is testifying. Once the testimony of these two witnesses has has been made complete through their martyrdom. So let's go back now to verse 5 and, and read about their powerful manner of testifying in 5, 6, and 7. So verse 5 says, And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Fire, then, coming from their mouths, the, the power of fire. We can remember how Elijah called down fire from heaven. Uh, it's also interesting here to think of Nephi and, and the, the type of, we might say, firepower that he possessed when he was filled with the Spirit and his brothers couldn't touch him. We, we almost imagine something like electricity coursing through him. He, too, was protected in such a way that he was full of power, and it was a powerful it was a power that was terrible to his antagonists. First uh, Nephi chapter 17 verses 48 and then 53 through 54 illustrate this, and I think they uh, give us a sense for the type of power that these two witnesses had in John's vision and that will have in the future. Here's 1 Nephi chapter 17, verse 48. And now it came to pass that when I had spoken these words, they were angry with me and were desirous to throw me into the depths of the sea. And as they came forth to lay their hands upon me, I spake unto them, saying, In the name of the Almighty God, I command you that ye touch me not, for I am filled with the power of God, even unto the consuming of my flesh. And whoso shall lay his hands upon me shall wither, even as a dried reed, and he shall be as not before the power of God, for God shall smite him. Then verses 53 and 54. And it came to pass that the Lord said unto me, Stretch forth thine hand again unto thy brethren, and they shall not wither before thee, but I will shock them, saith the Lord. And this will I do, that they may know that I am the Lord their God. And it came to pass that I stretched forth my hand unto my brethren, and they did not wither before me, but the Lord did shake them, even according to the word which he had spoken. And so again, the image of Elijah and the image of Nephi help us to understand this power that these two emissaries, these two uh, witnesses will have. Then verse 6 reminds us of Elijah even more. It says, These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, 
and that's an image that reminds us of Moses, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So very much like Moses. I'm struck by the phrase, as often as they will, uh, because we learn from another character who had power like this that he wouldn't ask that which was contrary to the Lord's will. And that was Nephi, if we remember that, that passage in Helaman chapter 10, where the Lord tells him that thou shalt not ask that which is contrary to my will, and then explains to him that he has the sealing power and can open and shut the heavens as he needs to in order to effect a change in the people that he ministered to, and so he, he did exactly that. So these, these um, witnesses will have that same power. All right, in verse 7, And when they shall have finished their testimony, all right, so when they're done, we can think about how that has applied to many other scriptural characters where they come to the point where the next step for them to seal their testimony is martyrdom. So it says, The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. It's very interesting to me that the way in which they're killed is is being described as as the beast because when we think of other scriptural characters that died as martyrs, we certainly don't think of a beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit that killed them directly. But we know that it was the beast that was behind the often mobocratic um, efforts that combined and the secret combinations that combined in the case of the Savior himself. And uh, um, we, we can think, of course, of Joseph Smith and uh, Benadai and then so many others. And we talked about the fifth seal uh, in Revelation chapter 6, uh, where, where the main characteristic of that thousand-year epoch was the, 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 the martyrdom of these great early saints. Uh, but, but in none of these cases do we read about a beast itself that directly kills them. But here is where we learn who is behind those, those efforts to kill servants of God. Then here's what happens to these two witnesses. In verse 8, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually, and uh, Wayment says that, that you could also read that as symbolically, is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. Why is it, we would ask, that they should not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves? Well, it, it appears that this is a decision that's made by their murderers and that they see their bodies as they lay, uh, lay open and dead as a victory trophy. Uh, they're, they're in some kind of a, a frenzy of victory and feel that they have finally overcome these two formidable and powerful witnesses, that they, in an act of war, have triumphed over them. And, of course, the influence of that great beast is behind all of that. Because, in verse 10, we read, And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, uh, 
and shall send gifts to one another, one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. That was their view of it, that they were tormenting them. We find a lot of similar language to that in the Book of Mormon, where those who are obviously and grossly in the wrong will still speak as though they are being tormented by those who are righteous. So that's uh, really telling here, that same scriptural pattern. And the rhetoric of the enemies of Christ is shown here in that little phrase where it says that these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. Then verse 11, And after three days and a half, the Spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. So their martyrdom is complete, and now something new happens that uh, is is very kind of cinematic in nature. And um, these uh, evil minions did not end up having the last word. And in verse 12 it says, And they heard a great voice from heaven, saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. What a frightening thing to behold. If you were among those who had murdered these two witnesses and had triumphed over their death and then saw them rise, become animated again, and then saw them ascend into heaven in a cloud and heard a voice. It says that their enemies beheld them in this. What a scene. I'm speaking, I I believe the right way to say this is in perfect tense uh, as I'm talking about this, knowing that this is a future event. And and that's what the text is doing here too. That's something that Isaiah does in, uh, in a lot of his writings. It seems sometimes to be the best method that these prophets have of describing a realm where God lives and where he's the master of time and it's all one eternal now. Now we get something that seems like it's the Lord's confirming witness after these two witnesses have fulfilled their mission. In verse 13, it says, And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake quake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted, and gave glory to the God of heaven. So we have these numbers again, and it's it's like this remnant theology that we've talked about before. 7,000 men would be a, a perfect number and then multiplied by a really large amount. Uh, and yet, even then, there is a remnant that is saved and gives glory to the God of heaven. And this, then, is the end of the second woe. Uh, Verse 14 says, The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Before moving into the third woe and into the seventh trumpet, the long-awaited seventh trumpet, let's talk just for a moment about these two witnesses and what we know about their identity from other scriptures. Doctrine and Covenants 77, verse 15 says that these two witnesses are two prophets 
that are to be raised up to the Jewish nation in the last days, at the time of the restoration, and to prophesy to the Jews after they're gathered and have built the city of Jerusalem in the land of their fathers. Isaiah saw them as well. In Isaiah chapter 51, verses 19 through 20, we read, These two things are come unto thee. Who shall be sorry for thee? Desolation and destruction and the famine and the sword. By whom shall I comfort thee? Thy sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets as a wild bull in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of thy God. That's an amazing restatement of the images that we saw, and we we see that Isaiah saw the thing that Ezekiel saw, saw the thing that John saw, but applied his own incredibly poetic gifts in describing them. We, we know of the power that they possessed and likened it unto Nephi's power, Elijah's power, and Moses' power. And Isaiah sums all of it up simply by saying that they were full of the fury of the Lord and were caught as a wild bull in a net. What an image. Bruce R. McConkie once said that, quote, no doubt they will be members of the Council of the Twelve or the First Presidency of the Church. Now we move to the second half of this chapter, which brings us to the end of this great vision of the seven seals Uh, They have now all been opened, and now the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet. So verse 15 says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord, and and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That last phrase sounds just like, the Hallelujah Chorus in Handel's Messiah, another Messiah reference in addition to Revelation chapter 5. Finally, it appears that this long-awaited day that was envisioned, but envisioned prematurely by those in the meridian of time, where this promised Messiah would Uh, rule on earth. It seems that this day has now come. And again, of course, I'm speaking in the perfect tense. But this then is expressed again by this phrase, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. That long-awaited moment is now happening, and now he can reign forever and ever. Notice John, um, who is such a master at at, um, creating unity of purpose in the Father and of the Son, and expressing the love and unity they had for one another is differentiating between the two here uh, by saying, our Lord and of his Christ. And I just love how it says, and his Christ, because we can't help but think about the anticipated Messiah and how it was hoped at his arrival in the meridian of time that he would be a governmental and military leader but was not. And so it it almost seems like a nod to them when it says his Christ because it he it is the Christ that belongs to the Father that is the real Messiah and now his time 
has finally come at the sounding of this seventh trumpet. Then we get an image of priesthood authority that sanctions the authority, or I should say governing authority of Jesus Christ himself in these four and twenty elders, which we've talked about before. And, and twelve is a number that represents completion or perfection in priesthood, all priesthood authority. Twelve of those would come from the old law, the twelve sons of Israel, and 12 of those elders would come from the new law, the 12 apostles. But most importantly, they represent all of those who, under their leadership, have accessed the covenant and followed that covenant path to its end, which culminates in that sealing and that access to the presence of God. So we read in verse 16, And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God saying in verse 17, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. So again, we find in this expression that he is going to use his priesthood power to reign. When it says, um, Thou art to come, in verse 17, um, a, a Greek translation, a careful Greek translation, doesn't really even bring that phrase out, art to come. Uh, it's kind of exclusive to the King James Version. Uh, in, in fact, for example, the, 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 the Thomas Wayment translation uh, says, instead of thou hast reigned, it says, thou hast started to rule. Now, that has a different flavor to it. And, and it would be helpful, I think, when we see the word power in verse 17 to put priesthood before it because that seems to be the point here in verses 16 and 17. That this priesthood power that we, we know of very well in his church is this thing, uh, is, is this power that the Savior wields and as he comes to rule on the earth, uh, it, it, it will be through that power. Now, verse 18 says, And the nations were angry, and thy wrath has come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them which destroy the earth. That might remind us of that two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, in the earlier part of John's vision because his arrival when he comes in glory and power and authority will be a time of great judgment and it will divide the nations into those who will say that thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants the prophets and to the saints and to them that fear thy name small and great but then also to the other camp who shouldst be destroyed because they destroyed the earth. And, and, so, and so we get both from his arrival. So the notion of the wicked being destroyed isn't new as we read Revelation, but this is a little bit different because now this is the beginning of his reign he will now exercise judgment upon the wicked remnant that remains. 
And so this is how the third woe is going to begin. It will be a time of ultimate destruction and subjugation of the wicked. And as I mentioned earlier then, this idea of the third woe is a thread that moves forward into the text as we move into Revelation chapter 12, and we can carry that through, and it it takes us almost to the very end of the book of, of Revelation, really. Then this chapter and this entire vision, really, ends because uh, chapter 12 will take us into a new set of visions and images. But, but it ends here in verse 19 in the most appropriate way possible. And, and it says, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. That last part again, the lightnings, voices, thunderings, and earthquake and great hail are, are, are that thread that moves forward. And that's, that's the, the woe that's beginning. And he's exercising judgment as he rules personally. But the thing that makes this, I think, so appropriate is that there has been this temple imagery throughout uh, these 11 chapters that are very enlightening to those who frequent the temple of the Lord. And in this case, the actual temple of God, remembering that, that our temples on earth are a figure of the actual abode of God. And, and we see it. John sees it, and it's opened in heaven. And, and, and when it's visible, there is the ark of his testament, the ark of his covenant, we could say. This is a critical motif in the Old Testament that reminds us of the steadiness and continuity and the veracity of God's promises with his people. However, in this case, we're seeing the evidence of that covenant on his side of the veil, on the Lord's side of the veil. So I think that's a very powerful and, most importantly, a very hopeful thing for us to envision. And, and I say that as we come to the end of this segment in Revelation because I think that our promises that we make with the Lord as his covenant keepers, they can sometimes feel like a unilateral proposition. <laughs> we because of the veil, because of the, the conditions of mortality, we, we don't always see or feel the, the party on the other side of this proposition of this covenant. But this image tells us that on his side, that, that, that he has made that promise with us as well, and that he is holding this ark and this covenant in his temple. And uh, it, 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 these covenants that we make with him most certainly are a bilateral accord, and they have a binding nature, and, and we can look forward to them with an eye of faith and, and to the time when he will return to reign personally on the earth as King of King and Lord of Lords, and he will make good on all his promises to Israel. Uh, both collectively as a people and individually to each of us 
one by one. 